Good morning, Four Oaks. It is Pastor Paul here at the home office Monday morning, excuse me, February 28th. Cannot believe this year is flying by like it is. Um, hey, if you're stumbling onto this time, just so you, you know what we're doing here, we take 10 or 15 minutes every weekday morning, Monday through Friday, to unpack a portion of God's Word. We are running concurrently with our preaching series on Sunday mornings at Four Oaks through the Book of Romans, and we use these times during the week to sort of follow up the passage, the sermon from the previous week, fill in some details, unpack some themes, do some applications, just some of the stuff that we may not have time to do um, in full on a Sunday morning, Romans being so rich and so powerful, there's so much there, we want to milk everything we can out of it. Now, last week, we took a little hiatus, so to speak. We were here, but we were here with Dr. Greg Allison. He was right here beside me, and now, uh, or right here beside me, and now I miss him. Um, but I hope that was a, a blessing to you guys. Go back and watch those interviews from um, this past week. Um, got into a lot of good stuff, but now we're back into Romans 8, and we're trying to understand the depths, and we're going to spend an eternity, right, exploring the depths of what Paul says here in Romans chapter 8. So let me read the, the theme verse again and sort of situate this, and, and, and let's take a little deeper dive into what Paul's saying. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we said that this is sort of the one pillar of the two-pillar house that Paul has been building, going all the way back to Romans 5.1, where Paul has been talking about justification. He's been talking about the benefits of being declared righteous before God. And he says positively, 5.1, there is now peace between you and God because of Christ. And now he states it in the negative. He renounces the negative in the strongest terms. Not only is there peace with God, there is now no condemnation. And we really talked about this idea yesterday during the sermon that we no longer have to live under the fear of dread of the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. We all live under condemnation in a variety of ways, whether they're, it's an inner voice of the conscience or um, an outer voice from the world or the culture or maybe from, from, from things around us, things from our past, things in our present. And it's not that those things aren't real. We're just digging down into the fact that the most real thing for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who've placed their faith in him, is that there is no longer condemnation, judgment, punishment, um, slavery to be born, penalty to be, to be born by the believer. And obviously, the more we can let that soak into our bones, the more it will transform us, change us, because now we no longer have anything to fear by having our sin exposed, by God going to work on our hearts. And um, what an incredible thing this is. Now, we want to draw some implications from this this week. And the first one I want to talk about today is, well, then how do we, how do we relate the declaration of no condemnation, this objective reality that Paul talks about here with what we also know to be true in that we struggle with sin and that we wrestle with sin. What does sin do or not do in our relationship with God? 
And so um, a couple of passages I want to, I, I want us to look at um, all under this particular thing, okay? Sin cannot disrupt the status of our relationship with God. It cannot destroy the standing that we have. In other words, justification is a once and for all declaration of God's free grace by which he pardons all our sins, accepts us as righteous in, our, in his sight. Nothing can change that. However, while our standing before God can ever be changed, it should be clear from Scripture, as we're going to see, that our fellowship, on the other hand, can be disrupted, okay? Our fellowship with God, our, our relational dynamic can be disrupted. And just a few passages um, to flip to. Look, flip over to 1 Peter 3, chapter 7. So Paul's talking about the relationship of husbands and wives. And he says, likewise, husbands, 1 Peter 3, 7, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Oh, this is interesting. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, that's an interesting sort of tidbit. So that your prayers may not be hindered. And there's a lot of debate about what exactly that means. But it's clear, I think it involves two kind of realities. One is, if there's ongoing conflict between a husband and wife, while it doesn't disrupt their um, covenant that they've made with each other, their standing is secure, it most certainly can disrupt their fellowship. It most certainly can disrupt their relationship, which is why there's all sorts of commands about giving short accounts and um, uh, rectifying things with your brother. And it's so, so, so prayers are being hindered. Well, not just between husband and wife, but there seems to be a disrupt um, in the man's fellowship with God. As he is running roughshod over his wife, he cannot expect that he can sort of um, mosey into God's presence um, with a clear conscience and not expect God to really work on him and convict him of sin. And so here we see this idea that sin can be disruptive, even for a Christian, of relationships with one another and relationship with God. Um, let's look at Ephesians 4.30. And here, Paul talks about the ongoing dynamic of the believer's life in Christ and the Holy Spirit. Verse 30 of Ephesians 4, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed, for the day of redemption, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. In other words, when we have ongoing conflict with other believers, when we are full of bitterness and enmity and anger and refuse to be reconciled to our brother and have malice in our hearts, this grieves the Holy Spirit. And we think about the Holy Spirit, again, not as a life force, but as the third person of the Trinity, the very God of gods. This is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ himself. And it says that the Spirit, Jesus, is grieved, right? He is grieved 
when we have unrepentant sin in our hearts, when we are resisting the Holy Spirit. We see an example of this in Psalm 38 and 39. So David is praying to the Lord because he says the Lord's hand is heavy upon him. And my pages are sticking together this morning, which, which cannot be good. Okay, so look at verse 1 of Psalm 38. O Lord, do not, uh, I'm saying, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy to bear. My wounds sink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. So David is really wrestling with the depths of his sin. His, his sin lies heavy on him. His iniquity um, lies heavy upon him. And he is calling out to the Lord because the Lord is burdening his heart. Um, he is calling out to God to give him relief. He is confessing his sins. And again, all of this is to signify that our standing in God, in Christ, can never be disrupted, but our fellowship can. Now, obviously, in many ways, the closest parallel we have to this in a human relationship is marriage. So a husband and wife make a covenant with one another, and that covenant is a life or death bond. Obviously, when tensions, conflicts, anxiety enters into the marital relationship, there is disruption of fellowship. We've just been talking about that from the verse in 1 Peter 3. Is the covenant threatened um, by, by ongoing struggles, tensions? Well, no, the covenant is permanent. It's fixed. It's life and death. But it's the virtue of that covenant that empowers husbands and wives to come together to resolve their differences, to confess their sins. They can do this with the assurance, with the standing that, that just because I expose some broken part of myself or I sin in this way doesn't mean the covenant is annulled. Um, in fact, it's because the covenant is permanent that we have the security, the standing before one another as husbands and wives to come together to resolve conflict. Now, in the same way, um, we think about our relationship with God. We have made a covenant with God. God has made a covenant with us. It's permanent. It's lifelong. And there is nothing that we can do that will threaten that covenant. There is, there is no sin that cannot be covered by the blood of Christ. There, we can legitimately say, no matter what, for the justified believer, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, here is where the analogy breaks down, right? See, there are limits to the covenant for a man and a woman. As we talked about a few weeks ago, there, there's, there's a number of ways in which covenants, marital covenants can be broken biblically, right? In other words, there are things a husband or wife could do that could disrupt the fellowship of their marriage permanently. 
if they were unfaithful, if they left the marriage, um, if there is ongoing unrepentant sin, those are things that could threaten the covenant. And, and so in that way, um, there are things that you could share with your spouse that could be potentially, potentially um, covenant breaking or covenant altering. This is why Ultimately, all analogies break down when compared to the analogy of Christ and the church. Remember, marriage is just a type. Marriage is just a picture. In heaven, we won't be given to marriage. We won't need it any longer because our covenant will be forever sealed. We'll, have, we'll be living the covenant. We won't need a picture of the covenant with marriage. We'll have the covenant, and nothing will be able to break that. And it, But the marital covenant comes the closest to showing us how this dynamic works in our relationship with Christ. And so what does this mean for us? Well, it means we need to be in a constant state of coming to God, confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, turning from them, trusting in Christ, praying for the grace of Christ in our relationship with God and our relationship with others, knowing that we can do this without fear, right? Because there's no condemnation for us. There's nothing that can be exposed to God that's going to God, cause God to turn his head away and reject us. If we're trusting in him, if we're in a position of need and confessing our sins and coming to him, no sin is uh, permanently um, separate us from him. There is no condemnation. And so because of that great truth, it empowers us to have ongoing relational fellowship with God just in the same way we do in a marriage. Okay, I hope that kind of helps to sort out how these things are related. We're going to jump back into these four verses um, tomorrow, these four verses of Romans 8, 1 through 4, as we continue to draw out implications uh, for this, from this amazing text. But in the meantime, let's pray. Lord, thank you that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. And because of that, we don't have to fear what we might find out to be true about ourselves that we can come to you confessing our sins, knowing that our status with you is permanently secure. There's no condemnation for us. And Lord, we thank you that this is possible because of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.